As we have been moving through 1 Corinthians 14, we have been uh, putting off at some level uh, the time when we would need to finally and fearlessly confront the issue of tongues speaking. And now is the time when we're going to start confronting that issue. And I use the term uh, fearlessly confronting that issue because it is a difficult thing to preach and to study and to attempt to rightly divide the word of truth when it comes to this issue. And this should not be a surprise to us that there are passages of our scripture that are challenges to understand and to interpret. How do, you, how do we know this? Because the Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, speaking of the epistles of Paul, he says, in them are some things hard to be understood. So if someone tells you, I personally consider all of the Bible very easy to understand, it is very clear, and uh, I have no problem interpreting it for you, you can say, well, then you're on the wrong side of Scripture. Because the inspired word of God says that even in that inspired word of God, there are some things hard to be understood. And yet that very passage in 2 Peter 3 tells us how important it is that we tackle not just easy passages, but hard ones. Because as Peter warned in 2 Peter 3, those passages that are hard to be understood, those who are unlearned and unstable, rest and twist as they do the other scriptures. The reason we tackle hard scriptures to be understood is for clarity and also for the encouragement of all of us not to be led away in paths that would lead us astray. Now, there's a challenge, I said, in preaching on this subject and one of them is because the sheer oh, is because of the sheer volume of different opinions you will find when it comes to the topic of speaking in tongues. As I have studied for not only this message but for this series of messages, it is almost overwhelming to realize the extent, the breadth of 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 Christian Christian thought. I would say today when it comes to this subject. There are extreme views, we might say, uh, across the board that are held up as being gospel truth. There is a broad range of opinions and doctrines that have been presented on this subject, which is an interesting thing because comparatively, the subject of tongues in our scripture has a very narrow breadth. As I mentioned this morning, There are only three New Testament books in which tongues speaking is mentioned. The book of Mark, the passage that Brother Kevin read for us tonight. The book of Acts and the book of 1 Corinthians in the passages 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 that we have been going through. There seems to be an incredible foregrounding of this issue when we don't necessarily, in my view, see that importance given to it across the counsel of God. But in this breadth, in this incredible scope of opinions, you have, for example, one opinion in the Pentecostal 
tradition that says, certainly not all Pentecostals would hold to this view, some have held that unless you speak in tongues, you are not truly born again. You are not even a Christian unless you have authentically spoken with this gift of tongues. There is another position that holds you may be born again. You may be a Christian if you have never spoken in tongues. But if you have never spoken in tongues, you are on a lower plane, a lower plateau in your spiritual life. You are missing something. You have never been baptized in the Spirit if you have never spoken with tongues. That would be a very common view. In fact, in the Assemblies of God movement, a very large denomination across the world, There are 16 fundamental truths. This is one of them. The baptism of believers, and I'm reading from their website, the baptism of believers in the Holy Spirit is witnessed by, can get that, is witnessed by the initial physical sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance. That is to say, if you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, according to the Assemblies of God movement, you will begin speaking with tongues. That is the sign that you have been baptized with the Spirit. If you go to the other side uh, of Christian theology or doctrine on this, you would find strong disagreement on two points. One, what tongues are, and two whether they still exist. There is one group that would say, this would be characterized probably most significantly today by John MacArthur. He held a conference called the Strange Fire Conference in which he and other Reformed thinkers brought out this idea, which has not been an uncommon idea, certainly in the history of the church, which is to say that God gave tongues gifts as actual known foreign languages. But while those were a legitimate gift in the early church, those gifts have passed from the scene such that if anyone purports to speak in tongues today, they are either deceived or they are actually demonically being influenced. That this is not a sign of spirituality, it is a sign of deception or heresy. There is no legitimate gift of speaking in tongues and no one can purport to do so today. That is a dominant position in certain conservative evangelical circles. There is another similar position uh, that says that speaking in tongues is only known foreign languages. There is no such thing as an ecstatic utterance. There is no such thing as a celestial or heavenly language. It is only known physical languages. But unlike the, shall we say, John MacArthur camp, this camp believes that that gift continues today. That God could still give someone the uh, the ability under the influence of the Spirit to speak a language they have never learned for the spread of the gospel. And one dear brother who has given this uh, perspective uh, publicly is Rick Flanders. We have had him here. Rick Flanders is someone who has said publicly the gift of tongues continues today. It has not ceased. It is just relating to known foreign languages. And between those two, if you might say very polar opposites, there is virtually every single different position you can imagine on what tongues are, whether they are for today, and whether they should be sought by the Christian church. When you're given that broad a scope of issues, it might boggle your mind if you try to sit down and say, what do I think about it? 
And that's why I want to suggest that in this series that we're going to go through, it's not going to just be tonight. As we try to understand what the Bible says on this topic, I want to do three things. This is our goals as we get through this, uh, this time. The first is this. I want comprehensiveness. I want us to know what the biblical passages are when it comes to tongues. I want us to have an understanding of where to look when I have a question on this very important topic. One in which literally hundreds of millions of Christians around the world, those professing the name of Jesus Christ, are at odds with one another. We need to know what the passages are and we need to have an understanding of what those say. I just want us to be fluent and coherent in where we look to these things biblically. The second thing I want to get to here is clarity. Clarity. I want us to reach our own position on what this topic is. Now, I know as I look out at this audience and certainly those who are listening online, there's no doubt that many of you have been taught on this subject before. Perhaps you come in with a strong opinion on this already, and that's just fine. Perhaps you come in in a state of confusion, or you come in with an open mind saying, I don't know what I believe, but I'm willing to hear it out. All of those things are fine. What I want us to do in this time, though, is to take a fresh look to see with clarity what the Word of God seems to say on this topic. I will take a position on what I think the word of God says on this, I do not require you to hold the same opinion. I want you to be thinking biblically about it. And here's one of the things that I want to encourage you on. There is, uh, I think, a tendency in preaching on this issue to focus more on what comes alongside either speaking in tongues or not speaking in tongues and criticize that instead of going to the word of God and say, what does the word of God say? Those who criticize the charismatic or Pentecostal position of speaking in tongues say, look at all the nonsense that goes on in the Pentecostal and charismatic movement that has nothing to do with the Spirit of God. And look at all of this that can't be the Spirit of God. Well, what does the Bible say? I don't really care how people abuse the Bible. They abuse the Bible all the time. I want to know what the Bible says. Other people, when they look at at, at those who say, There is no tongue speaking for today. Say, look at those dead churches. They don't know anything about the experience of the Spirit. Those people are deader than a doornail. And so I toss that out. I say, what does the Bible say? Don't just focus on what accompanies those who hold a certain theological position. Ask what the Bible says and allow that to regulate us. Allow that to teach us. And so I want to bring clarity, not first and foremost, from the sociological elements of tongue speaking or not tongue speaking. I want to focus on the text. I want to focus on what God is speaking to us through the word of God. And then, frankly, let the chips fall where they may. I have no doubt when we come to the end of this series, if you are an utterly committed cessationist, I'm going to say things that you're going to disagree with and you're going to think I'm wrong and that's okay. 
And if you are someone who has been raised in a Pentecostal or charismatic tradition, I have no doubt that I'm going to say many things that are going to leave you shaking your head and saying, no, I'm not sure I agree with that. And you know what? That's okay. My job is not to fall into any camp, is not to have any label attached to me. I really don't care. My job is to take the Bible and tell you as honestly and sincerely and thoughtfully as I can by the Spirit of God what I believe this book tells us. And that is my goal, and I hope that it is your goal as we come to this topic. Here's the third goal. We have comprehensiveness. We have clarity. Third, I want charity. Charity. I have an extreme distaste for those who come to very difficult topics like this one and set up a straw man of what the other side believes and knock it down and celebrate a great victory. That is not charitable. It is not respectful of those committed, sincere believers who hold a different position and who have been convinced from this book that their position is correct. And I hope that what you see in the way that we approach these difficult passages is not anything along those lines, but is in charity attempting to give good faith to those who see differently, but ultimately to reach a position of clarity nonetheless. I can say honestly with all my heart that there are those who will take a very different position from me when it comes to this issue that are wonderful people who love the Lord and are probably closer to him than I am. And unless we approach this subject with that kind of charity, we are going to just continue churning. If you look at these debates and discussions of these issues online, you so often see far more heat than light. And that is not the work of charity. It's not the work of the Holy Spirit. We should be the ones who don't shy away from taking controversial positions or taking on doctrinal positions and say, this is what we believe. But it should be with the spirit of charity that allows us as a broader group of Christians to nonetheless be in unity and in harmony with one another in our love for the Lord and the many areas in which we agree. So let us, as we come into this subject, remember those three goals. We want to be comprehensive at knowing where in the Bible we go to look at these issues. We want to have some clarity on what position we think most likely the Spirit has for us today. And third, always, always under the umbrella of charity for those who may see things differently than we do. And to do that, I don't think I know a better way than to start with the words of Jesus himself when it comes to this subject of speaking in tongues. Mark chapter 16, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to take a look at this passage with us tonight. Jesus has gathered together his disciples. He is giving them a form of his great commission. And he says in verse 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. Interesting. New tongues. 
They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Now, this is a prophecy of our Lord. This is not Jesus speaking. There go the lights again. Better turn up the heat. No, I'm just kidding. Jesus is saying here a prophecy of what will happen in the future, not something that was happening right then. He said, they will speak in new tongues. Now, my question for you tonight is when did that happen? And where would we look to see when Jesus' prophecy came true? Does anyone have any ideas? When did that first happen? Acts at Pentecost. What I want to do tonight is I want to look at a biblical history of tongues. That will be the title of our message tonight, A Biblical History of Tongues, in which we will go through the biblical evidence that we have recorded, the historical evidence that we have for tongues, and then seek to draw some conclusions and ultimately, for you all, a little bit of homework before we go on next week. Let's start right here in Mark chapter 16 with this, what I'll call a prediction of tongues. A prediction of tongues. Notice what Jesus says, that those who believe, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name, shall they, they shall speak with new tongues. I just want us to note a couple things that are very important here in Jesus's prediction. First of all, who? Who will speak with tongues? Who does he say will speak with tongues? Those who believe. And not only that, notice what he also says. Those that believe in my name shall they cast out devils and speak with new tongues. So this is not only connected to those who are followers of Christ by faith. It is connected to those who are doing things in his name. It is a connection to those who identify as Christians and are publicly identifying themselves as Christians in their words and actions. We cannot get rid of the fact that this of tongues, this gifting of tongues was centrally connected to Jesus Christ. Put a pin in that for us to come back to that later. The second is what they would be doing. Now, there are a number of things that are said here. They will cast out devils. Did that happen in, in the early church? Yes, it did. Did they speak with new tongues? Yes, they did. Did they take up servant, serpents? Yes, we see Paul in the book of Acts being bit by a viper and, 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 and brushing off this poisonous snake into the fire and no harm coming out. He says also if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. We don't have a record of that in the scripture, but we know that if Jesus predicted it, it would have come to pass. And it also says here, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Undoubtedly, Jesus is prophesying things that have come to pass. This one here says they will speak with new tongues. Now pause on that for a moment. What do you think he means when he says new tongues? One idea, could it, it could be quantitatively new, a, a, a language that was new to you, an additional language that you had never learned. 
We must acknowledge that it could be a qualitatively new language, one that no one has ever spoken before, as if God is, is inventing a language. There is a little bit of ambiguity there. What does Jesus mean when he says a new tongue? Put a pin in that idea. Finally, to what end? To what end is Jesus saying these tongue speakings will be toward? Notice what he says. And these, verse 17, what's the next word? And these signs. Signs. Now, what is a sign? A sign is an indicator of something. When you pull up to a stop sign, that sign is sending a message to you that there is something very important for you to consider. And in the sense in which sign is used in the Bible, it is God's signpost saying, get the message, I'm communicating, I'm doing something here. Scripture talks here immediately after this passage. Notice verse 20. The disciples went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. What was happening? People were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, centrally connected to the work and word of Jesus Christ. And what happened? God said, here are some signs to confirm what I have done for you. So Jesus is predicting that these, his followers, those who are centrally connected to him, will exercise, will speak with new, there's ambiguity there, new tongues, The very idea there doesn't seem to refer to just the tongue, but of course, a language emanating from the tongue. And that that will be for the purpose of signs, of confirmation of the presence and the work of God. And that's why we need to fast forward to the book of Acts. So I encourage you now to turn over to Acts chapter 2. And we'll look secondly at what we'll call the record of tongues. We looked at the prediction of tongues. Let's look secondly at the record of tongues. My encouragement to you today is that we're going to look at each of the three passages in the book of Acts in which tongue speaking is mentioned. Only three times in the 30 or so years that the book of Acts covers And what I want us to do tonight is to look for commonalities. I want to look across the three accounts and see if we can have any standard conclusions. What is happening in this record that the Holy Spirit has left us of tongue speaking? And from there, we'll seek to look for any conclusions that we can draw from the record, from the historical record of tongues speaking. First of all, look at Acts chapter 2. I think we know the context. The, uh, the, uh, uh, the apostles and disciples, about 120 of them, were in an upper room. They were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And what came next? The Bible tells us. Notice with me, will you? Verse 2. There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. Notice he doesn't say an actual mighty wind came. It was the sound. Imagine being there for that moment. It filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. He doesn't say 
as of fire, as, or it was fire. He said it was like fire. It was as of fire. So there is this auditory. There's something they heard. There is something they saw. Cloven tongues like fire. And what was it doing? It sat upon each of them. Now notice verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And began to speak with other tongues. Jesus said new tongues. Scripture says other tongues. Here in Acts chapter 2. As the Spirit gave them utterance. So here's the first thing we need to look at. And the first question we need to answer. Who are the recipients of this gift? Who are the recipients of the gift in Acts chapter 2? And we should see obviously that it was consistent with what Jesus had said. Those who believed, those who were uh, operating in his name. Now I want us to see one other interesting component of this. This was something that happened to a group of people. Do you notice that? 120 of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with tongues. This was a communal experience. It was a group experience, of course, even as it was a very individual one, as each one of them were given utterance by the Spirit. The Spirit gave them utterance. Here's another question for us What were they speaking? What were they speaking? Okay, they were speaking tongues. We know that. Jesus said they would be new tongues. Acts 2 calls them other tongues. Notice, keep on going. Verse 5 says, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. You say, why would they be in Jerusalem? Because it was the Feast of Pentecost. And people, uh, devout Jews, would come from all over the world to the city of Jerusalem to worship God with other Jews. It was a pilgrimage to the place of the temple of God. So Jews from every nation under heaven. Now look at verse 6. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? 120 Galileans from the backwater of Judea. These weren't cultured, civilized people. These were rough-cut, common folk. And these people from every nation under heaven are looking at these backwater, if you don't mind the expression, Galileans, saying, What are they doing speaking my language? I don't get it. Now look with me in verse number 8. And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Now something is important to see here. In in verse 6, when scripture says every man heard them speak in his own language. Do you know what that word is? We would transliterate it in in, in English, dialectos. Guess what English word we get from dialectos? Dialect. What is clear about what is going on here? What were they speaking? They were speaking languages. They were speaking foreign languages. Now, some have suggested only, oh, this was only a miracle of hearing. 
God gave them utterance to speak, but people just miraculously heard them in their language. I think the text rules this idea out. Because scripture says the spirit gave them utterance to speak other languages. It was the spirit miraculously doing something. Not only that, these men from all over the world looked at them and say, we hear them speaking in our tongues, in our own languages. I don't believe this is just a miracle of hearing. It seems clear to me that this is a miracle of speaking. And in fact, even across the Pentecostal movement today, the, the majority, the bulk of Pentecostal theologians will say, yes, this involves foreign languages. This, does, this was not simply a miracle of hearing. This was not an ecstatic or some kind of other utterance that just happened to be translated miraculously for these people in their own language. No, there is a general agreement, not a universal agreement, but a general agreement that this refers to speaking in actual languages. Now, I want to bring apart how, bring out what a remarkable miracle this is. Keep on going in number, verse number nine. We're tempted to scan over these verses because it just seems like place names. As this doesn't mean anything to us. We're not communi- God's not communicating much information to us here. No, he is. The only reason we don't think he is is because we have no idea what these places are. <laughs> if we knew we'd see what God is communicating. Listen to this. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia, in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Friends, you need to understand something. Pastor Mark Minnick, and he was preaching on this topic, brought this out wonderfully. If you were just to get a map and you were to put a pin in each one of these places that has been mentioned, do you know what you'd find? 16 different regions of the world at that point are referenced here. It goes as far west as Rome, as far east as Persia. You know what that is? 2,000 miles. 2,000 thousand miles of geographical territory it is as far north as rome it is as far south as libya do you know what that is one thousand miles in other words this uh, uh this dialect these dialects that were being spoken covered two million square miles of territory of the, of the known world at that time. And just by knowing these place names historically, we can say that they covered at least 12 different dialects and certainly more. And these people say, we hear them speaking in every one of our languages, in every one of our dialects. Again, put a pin there. Who were they? Followers of Jesus Christ in his name. What were they doing? They were speaking They were speaking in languages. Here's the next question. What were they speaking? Were they speaking gibberish? Were they speaking anything that would be considered uh, unintelligible? Let's see. Notice here in verse 11. We do hear them speak in our tongues. What? The wonderful works of God. Let me ask you this. 
if these people were speaking in their own language or if they were speaking in our language right here at church tonight, the wonderful works of God, what would you call that? What would you say they were doing? Prophesying? What else? Anything else? Testifying? What else? Praising? Glorifying? In other words, I want to make clear here what was going on was there was a message. There was a message that was being communicated. There was something that was being said intelligibly. They were intellectually comprehending what they were saying. They were saying, we've got some works of God to talk about. And as the Spirit was giving utterance, they were miraculously speaking them in at least 12 different dialects in this group of people. Very interesting. Now, let me ask you this. Jesus said that these would come as a sign. This would be a sign. What message needed to be communicated in Acts chapter 2 and to whom? Let me ask you that question. What sign needed to be communicated and to whom in Acts chapter 2? It was those in, in Jerusalem who needed to hear, right? What's very interesting is those who heard them speaking in their own language were undoubtedly some of the thousands who came to faith later that day. Can we safely assume that? If they heard them testifying the magnificent works of God in their language, we can safely assume that they were of the ones who came to faith. But do you know what others said? These men are full of new wine. They're drunk. Now, some Pentecostals would say that is a a sign of the ecstatic utterance. They thought they were crazy. They thought they were drunk. I don't see it as that because it seems clear to me they were speaking known languages. What I see is people who are hard-hearted enough when they see the sign of God's work coming to reject it to their own judgment and mock and say, God has no part in this. In fact, I think we'll see a, a connection to that in 1 Corinthians 14 when Scripture says tongues are a sign to the unbeliever. Why are tongues assigned to the unbeliever? I think it's something similar to this. It's a sign of judgment. Not every sign in scripture is a sign of confirmation. Sometimes there are signs of judgment that by our rejection of them, we are only confirming our own judgment from God. One more point from Acts chapter 2 that I want to say. Notice how Paul dis- or Peter excuse me, describes what had been happening. Peter says in verse 14, and then into verse 15, he says, For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall, what? Prophesy! Friends, what was going on in Acts chapter 2? What were they doing? Joy just said it. They were prophesying. Now, what an interesting thing that in 1 Corinthians 14, we see a tension, we see a difference brought up between Paul saying prophesying and speaking in tongues. What do we see here? We see the early church and the Holy Spirit identifying the tongue speaking with the prophecy. Why? Because what is prophecy? Remember what we talked about two weeks ago on Sunday evening? Prophecy is speaking the words of God through a human mouth. It is the Spirit of God communicating His message through human 
action through human mouths. What was happening here? God was giving a message to whom? The people who needed to hear it. In what? In their own language. By whom? Those who had never spoken it before. Acts chapter 2, what is going on are people who by the utterance of the Holy Spirit miraculously speak the words of God in prophecy. They are prophesying the wonderful works of God to those who needed to hear it, either as a sign of confirmation leading them to faith or a sign of judgment confirming them in their own stubbornness and rebellion. That is my view of Acts chapter 2, it seems clear to me, from this connection. Now turn over to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. You remember here in the context that Peter has been sent by God in part through a vision of some very tasty or not so tasty animals coming down on a sheet that what God has called uh, uh, clean, you don't call unclean. What God has called common, you don't call Uh, You don't call defiled. Now, what has happened? Peter has come where Cornelius has gathered together his friends and his family. He tells Peter, I'm ready to hear the words of God from you. Now, what is notable about this story? Who is the one, who are the ones who who have called Peter to their house? What are they? Gentiles, they're not Jews. Acts chapter 2. The gift of tongues is given to those who are communicating to the Jews. What happens in Acts chapter 10? Suddenly here there are Gentiles and the doors to the church, to the kingdom of God, will be thrown open to Gentiles. Notice what Peter says. Let's fast forward to verse 39. He says, we are witnesses of all things which he, Jesus, did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. Here Jesus is being lifted up and elevated and the spirit of God is at work. Now go ahead to verse 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed, those Jews which were there which believed, were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. How did they know the gift of the Holy Ghost had been poured out on the Gentiles? For because they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And what does this lead Peter to do? It's time to get baptized. It's time to get baptized because God has clearly given the Holy Spirit to these people. We hear them speaking with tongues. Now let's step back and ask the same questions. Who were the recipients of the gift of tongues? Who spoke with tongues in this passage? Gentiles. Gentiles who had just believed, who had very clearly just believed at the message of Peter. Notice again it was a group. It was an entire group of people. This was not a private devotional time. This was a group of individuals who were gathered together and all of them began, at least from what we can tell, the entire group began speaking with tongues. 
that is, those are the recipients. Let's go again to the medium. What were they speaking? Notably, Scripture doesn't tell us this time. It doesn't tell us whether they were speaking in a known foreign language or whether they were speaking in some other, whether a celestial language or an ecstatic utterance that didn't have any intelligibility at all. But one thing we should note is that Peter was there in Acts chapter 10 and he was there in Acts chapter 2. Peter understood that what had happened to them was the Holy Spirit. And Peter is going to tell us why he knew it was the Holy Spirit. Go ahead to Acts chapter 11. Notice he's, as he's recounting this wonderful testimony to the, to the church that was in Jerusalem. He says in verse 15, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Now the words that are used here in the Greek are unambiguous. It's not saying as on us as, as in kind of like us. It is really the idea of exactly like us. The Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles exactly like he did on the church in Jerusalem. Now, what does that mean? Peter saw people speaking in tongues in the exact same way that he had seen them speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2. And he knew it was the message of God that God was wrapping the Gentiles in to the Christian faith. Not only that, Acts chapter 10 says of them that they spoke with tongues, notice verse 46, and magnify God. Now, this was not evangelistic. These people, Cornelius and his household, they were not preaching the gospel to unregenerate people, testifying to them the wonderful works of God. But what was going on? If I was in front of you speaking in this way and magnifying God, what would you say was going on? He's testifying. He's praising. Perhaps he's prophesying. He's exalting and extolling God. Peter knew enough of what was going on to know that they were magnifying God. What does that tell you what was happening inside Cornelius and his compatriots? They had a message they were speaking. They were intending to praise God. They were intending to magnify him. And the Spirit gave them utterance to do so in other tongues. Now let me say here, I think we need some humility because Scripture does not clearly tell us. But my view of Acts chapter 10 is that Peter saying the Holy Ghost fell on them just like he did on us is saying that these men were also, men and women were also speaking distinct foreign languages. I cannot say that with 100% conviction, 100% confidence, because again, the text does not say that. But given the circumstances and given that Peter knew and understood that they were magnifying God, they heard them magnifying God, it does seem to suggest that there was an intelligible foreign language that was being spoken. So again, Acts chapter 2, a recipients of people testifying, praising, prophesying toward God speaking in known foreign languages that were heard by those around them as a sign to them. In Acts chapter 10, we see those who were speaking with tongues, a recipient, a group of people who were magnifying God in what I think is best understood to be foreign languages. Let me ask this. There was a sign going on in Acts chapter 10, wasn't there? But to whom? Who was the sign to in Acts chapter 10? The Jews, 
Peter was the one that needed that message. Peter was the one that needed his blinders taken off, his prejudices removed. Those Jews were the one that God was speaking to when those Gentiles began speaking in tongues. In each case, it's a sign. In each case, a praise is being given to God. Now turn ahead to Acts chapter 19. This is our last passage in Acts. And I want us to notice another interesting example. Paul has come to Ephesus. Verse 1 tells us, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Very interesting question. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. It's as if they're saying the Holy Ghost, who's he? Has the Holy Ghost even been given yet? What is that? And then Paul says, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Interesting. They spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about 12. So what do we have here? Who are the recipients? Disciples of John, presumably Jews. But what we know about them is they were disciples of John the Baptist. What, were the, what was the cause of their receiving this gift of tongues? They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul, had laid his hands on them. What did they begin speaking? They began speaking with tongues, notice, and prophesying. Now, this is something that's very important, I think, to us. Those in the Pentecostal movement would look at this passage and say, this is not an example of speaking in known foreign languages. This is an example of speaking in some ecstatic utterance or in some uh, celestial or divine language, angelic speech. The challenge, I think, with that view is to say that scripture says they spake with tongues and prophesied. In other words, just as we saw in Acts chapter 2, in which the speaking in tongues seemed to be a prophetic message, Peter expressly says, this is the prophecy that we would prophesy when we received the Holy Spirit. There seems to be a connection here that these disciples of John the Baptist, when they received the Holy Spirit, began communicating a message from God, even if they were using other tongues. What's the difference? You can prophesy in your own language, or you can prophesy in a language in which you were miraculously given to speak. So can I say with complete clarity that in Acts chapter 19, there was no ecstatic utterance or no divine language of any kind? I can't say that directly from the text. But it does seem to me, if we're putting our thinking caps on and being consistent with what we've seen elsewhere in the book of Acts, that most likely these men were communicating an intelligible message in some foreign language. That is at least what appears to be the case to me. Now, let me ask you this. What is the sign that was necessary for these men? Who was the one that was receiving the sign here? The disciples of John the Baptist. They were the ones that needed a special confirmation from God 
that the baptism of John was not the baptism for them. But Jesus Christ was the one who came and John pointed toward him. They needed to see that there was something they were missing. They were incomplete in some particular way and connected to the central claims of Jesus Christ. They had now received the fullness that God intended. So from that overview, what would at least I say are the commonalities involved in the book of Acts when it comes to the only three historical places in all the Bible in which men or women are recorded to have spoken with tongues. Three places in which it is described for us. We see, one, that it was accompanied by the reception of the Holy Spirit, by people who were centrally connected to the claims of Jesus Christ and in his name, in, at least as best as I can glean, a, a, a known foreign language in which there was an intelligible message that is being communicated. An intelligible message of prophecy, of praise, of testimony to God in which people were intending to communicate that message. It was not bypassing their mind. It was not going apart from their understanding of seeking to praise God for the wonderful works that he had done. And it was a sign. Someone needed a message. Someone needed to be confirmed or judged in a particular way. And in this sense, we see what I believe are some commonalities across the book of Acts. If you see it differently, that's fine. I'd love to hear from you. If you see differences in what we've shared across Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts chapter 19. Now here's the important, here's the important part. I want to just very briefly think thirdly about a distinction of tongues. I want to ask, what do we get from this historical summary of the book of Acts? Here's one thing we should immediately rule out the idea that is common in the Pentecostal world that you must speak in tongues to manifest the work of God in your life. We should absolutely rule out the idea that in order to be saved, you must speak in tongues. We should rule out the, the idea that if you speak in tongues that you are on a higher plane of spiritual existence. What is common to each of these three historical examples in the book of Acts? What did each person do when they received the Holy Spirit? They began proclaiming. They began prophesying. They began magnifying God. They began exalting Jesus Christ. Do you know why this shouldn't be surprising to us? Because Acts chapter 1, Jesus said... When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to receive power. And you are going to be witnesses. In some cases in the book of Acts, do you know what that looked like? Being witness is for him in languages you had never learned. Praising him, magnifying him, extolling him in languages you'd never learned. And do you know what in a lot of other cases in the, in the New Testament it looks like? Praising God in your own language magnifying him and extolling him in the language you do know, not in the ones you don't know. 
So my encouragement to those of you who hear the claims of those uh, Pentecostal brothers and sisters or those who have been influenced by the charismatic movement say, you're missing something. You're missing, if you, if you don't have this, you're really missing out. Remember that the central characteristic of the, of the coming of the Holy Spirit across Acts is people got bold and started speaking for him. And so, first of all, the focus of us shouldn't necessarily be on something that the Bible doesn't intend to place in the foreground, but instead on this, are you speaking the word of God and testifying about him to others in your own language? That is a sign of being filled with the Spirit, and may each one of us pursue that aspect, that characteristic, that element of the Holy Spirit's fullness in each one of our lives. So let's put that to one side. Let's put that view to one side and reject it as unbiblical, as going beyond what we think Scripture says. Here's another question. Paul was the one in Acts chapter 19 who heard these men speak with tongues. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, I speak with tongues more than all of you. Paul knew what the gift of tongues was. Paul experienced it. He testified to it. And this is where I'm going to leave you with some homework. My challenge to you this week, before we return again next Lord's Day evening on this subject, my challenge to you is to study 1 Corinthians 12 when it speaks of tongues and 1 Corinthians 14. And I want you to study as a student would and say, is 1 Corinthians 14 describing the same experience with tongues as we see in the book of Acts? Or does it seem to be describing a different one? Now, You say, how am I going to do that? Remember the characteristics that we have just gleaned from the book of Acts. What were those characteristics? Connected to the the, the reception of the Holy Spirit by, we might say, groups of people who were communicating in what appear to be known foreign languages with the intent of giving a message of praising God and testifying to his greatness, extolling and praising him, and for a sign, for a message that certain people needed to hear, whether the unsaved or the saved. I want you to take those commonalities of what we see in the book of Acts, take them over to 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, study that out thoughtfully and say, Do these match up? Are these talking about the same thing? Are these talking about a different thing? Now you say, why? Here's why. If 1 Corinthians 14 is talking about the exact same thing that Acts is, we might be close to a conclusion already. Because we might say then, the book of Acts seems to be giving us a historical record. And therefore, if 1 Corinthians 14 is talking about the same thing, we can safely assume that the same characteristics we see in the book of Acts are the same characteristics in the book of 1 Corinthians. And therefore, if that gift still continues on to today, it is the same idea. It is the same characteristics. But if they're different, then we'll need to do a little bit more careful thought and a little bit more understanding of what tongues are and may be for us today. 
So I leave you with that homework. One, have the comfort to know that the Holy Spirit may not work in your life in the same way he works in everyone else's life. But the commonality among all things is that he stirs your heart to praise God, to exalt Jesus Christ, and to testify to him about others. Make sure that you're doing that this week. And then take home some homework from this biblical history that will combine that next week with some more description from 1 Corinthians as we look at this important topic. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we recognize that there are things that are hard to be understood from your word. And yet that doesn't turn us away in discouragement because we know that all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired and it is profitable. Father, I pray that as we tackle this important subject, one in which there is so much uncertainty, so much disagreement, and so much even disunity among your people, may we come at it with humility, may we come at it with clarity, may we come at it with charity for what you are doing in our midst. Let's pause with our heads bowed and our eyes closed and assess tonight what has the Holy Spirit been doing in your life, leading, to, leading you to testify of him to others and to praise him. May each, we each be filled with the Holy Spirit in that regard and giving that characteristic this week. Father, may we magnify you and speak of your wonderful works in the tongues that you have given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.